Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 7 and reading down to verse 20. The he here is speaking of Jesus. So here's what it says. Revelation 1, chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and in patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, Pergamos and into Thyatira, Sardis and Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, and as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength." And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the golden candlesticks. Excuse me, the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. I'll conclude our reading this morning. And... um, Forgive any of the mistakes I might have made. The um, re- reading Revelation chapter one verses seven through twenty. Um, the title of our message this morning is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. And before we get to our scripture reading, and before we even get to our topic, um, I would like to make just a 
brief preliminary comment. Um, I think very often as, as I come and, and try to preach um, and find myself in this mindset, I suppose, um, that we speak about a lot of things that are invisible. Heaven, you can't see it. Hell, you can't see it. God is invisible. The Holy Spirit is invisible. Conviction, invisible. The cross was at one time visible, but is now invisible to us. We talk about the devil, he's invisible. Angels, they're not visible to us. We spend a lot of time looking through the scriptures, talking about historical events and people who have come and gone. And we see depictions of those people in paintings and in movies and in in whatever. But I think we all know those are just um, reprints. Those are just depictions of something that is now to us invisible. And I think there is a tendency, I don't know if that's been enhanced in our age because of how much that we see, to, in the very least, diminish the significance of invisible things. Brother Ron mentioned nine people who lost their lives not too far from us. Those people are invisible to us. You likely didn't know anybody. You likely don't know the family. It's a headline to us. And I don't mean that with any disrespect whatsoever. It's just the effect. Last week we heard of six people losing their life in Nashville. And our hearts are gripped with sadness, and our emotion is increased largely because of the fear of it happening to one of us or one of our loved ones. The actual event and the tragedy and the people, unfortunately, because of human nature and because of the transient world that we live in, it's a headline that here today and is gone tomorrow. And yet you well know when you have lost someone that it's a lot more than a headline. What is invisible to others, experientially to you, is everything. It grips you with a firmness that is, makes it difficult to even breathe at times when reality hits in that way. And much of what the proclamation of the gospel is about is trying to proclaim invisible things that within you it might be mixed with faith to where that which is invisible would be as though it were visible. That you could, within your heart and within your mind, So believe 
what is invisible to you. Now again, I, I even hesitate to say that because I feel as though the word invisible may be misunderstood to mean fake. No. Oxygen is real. Being deprived of it for just a few moments, you'll know how real it is. And yet it's invisible. You hear of people's sicknesses. You know, we, we have all these systems in our bodies, a digestive system and a nervous system, endocrine system, all these things, and they're invisible to us. You just put food in and it, your body takes care of it. And it sends things where it needs to go. And you don't even really think about it until it doesn't work. And then suddenly, it's a really big deal. Very often I fear that as I get up and I preach the gospel, especially to young people, there is this very natural inclination for you to somehow compartmentalize all of these invisible things that I speak about, to temporarily put them in front of your eyes as you're forced to coming here, but in the back of your heart and mind, dismiss them as just fantasy or fake because they're invisible. And because the reality of them is perpetually hidden to us. So very often what I pray when I get in a state of coldness is, Lord, show me the reality. You see, God doesn't have to do some special thing to incline mine in your heart other than just to show us what is real. He doesn't have to embellish. He doesn't have to create some fear and push. All he has to do is unveil what our blind hearts don't want to see. And yet, what we're going to speak of this morning, if this is real, it means something. If Jesus really is as this describes, it doesn't just mean something. It means everything. And the same is true with the story of the gospel. If what we tell you is real, it must be captivating. And if it is not real, run away from it. But don't be lulled to sleep in the middle of picking and choosing when you and I want to believe in spiritual reality and when we don't. What we're going to talk about this morning is a place where Jesus is presently at. He's exalted. And this scripture described him in some degree that way. Before we go there this morning, I want to talk about Jesus as we often think of him. The Bible depicts to us that Jesus is, existed before his incarnation. Incarnation just means when he took 
bodily form. Unlike you and I, Jesus is pre-existent. So at the moment of conception, your spirit was created. Before that, you did not exist. But at the moment of conception, your spirit, the who, the, the personality, that person took existence. And yet the Bible teaches us that Jesus, unlike every other man and woman who has ever lived, was before that. There are many scriptures that we could point to, to to point that out. But one that comes to mind is it tells us in the very beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we learn what occupied some of the time and energies of Jesus before, before the world was is that he was a creative being. We think of God the Father being the one to create, but the Bible clearly tells us it was Jesus that did that. And yet, again, doesn't that just seem so long ago? It feels fake. It's so far beyond, thousands of years, is so far beyond what I can conceive of. That you say, okay, Jesus was around in eternity past and then he created something and that just seems fake because it's so far away. But I'll assure you it's not. There was a point where Jesus created. And everything that was and everything that will be, he created. The Bible teaches us that all things were made by him and for him. That's Colossians chapter 1. So you and I and everything that exists as important and intricate and as, as much of a human touch that things in our modern world have, every single thing that exists in this universe was made by Jesus Christ and for him. And all of it was made to worship and bow down at Jesus Christ's feet. Now, as you can tell, not much does that anymore. Now, nature does. The animals do. But in large part, people have rebelled against God. God knew this was going to happen. He knew rebellion was coming. He knew that man was going to need a savior from his own sin that separated him from God. And so Jesus took upon himself the form of sinful flesh. He didn't take upon sinful flesh the form of sinful flesh. The appearance of sinful flesh. And yet he, unlike anybody else, had no sin within him from birth. And we read through the Gospels... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of those are these biographies or just snapshots of things that God wants us to know about the life of Jesus. And it's, it's, it's amazing to read the Gospels. Of all of the Bible, the Gospels are my favorite. Because it's God in the flesh. Who he was and what he said and what he did. And it's gripping when I pause and consider this is not a story. This is a a historical account of a real man. 
And we consider for a moment his condescension, which means he was in this exalted form and he became flesh and took upon him all the weakness that you and I have. That's an incredible consideration. God became a man and didn't pull a cheat card. He didn't choose to live in luxury. He didn't choose to live immune from pain and suffering. Actually, the Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews that he learned obedience as a a son by the things which he suffered. So he learned obedience the same way we learn obedience. Through the things which we have to suffer. And we read all through the Gospels that God hungered. And that God thirsted. And that God wept. And that God felt temptation. And that God was exposed. He bled. That God was disappointed. That he sorrowed. That God came down to this earthly flesh and he experienced humanity just like you and I do. People, I read something yesterday from Ken Ham. He's the guy that made the Creation Museum. He said something like an atheist once asked him, well, if your God is real, why doesn't he just come to earth and show himself? And Ken Ham's response was he did and they crucified him. They hated him. He came, and it's, it's amazing to consider that he was a perfect man. Like, there was no reason to hate him. You know? Like, what did he do to offend somebody? What did he ever say to offend somebody? Did he ever lift up a finger in vengeance? Or anger, intemperate anger. Never, one time, everything he ever said and did was perfect and was suitable, was designed for the welfare and benefit of you and I. And yet people hated him. And people still do today. And yet much of that hate is, I think, predicated on a, what they believe to be a figment of their imagine, or our imagination. Alexander the Great, in many ways to me, is not even real. He's just this person way back when, and that's how often people treat Jesus. Is that he's just this figment of our imagination that, yes, he may have been a historical figure, but he's irrelevant in many ways. I want to tell you that Jesus has something very different about him than all the men of the past. There's a place in the book of Isaiah where the writer Isaiah begins to write condemnations to the leaders of these nations. So he goes through Syria and he goes through Assyria and he goes through Babylon. He goes all these different nations that have been the enemies of God. And at that moment, they were their, their height of power, many of them. And they were looking down at God's people, Israel and Judah, and God was going to use them to punish Israel and Judah. And yet they became very lofty in their opinions of themselves. And at one point, God 
or excuse me, it begins to describe what the king of Babylon is going to be like, that one day, some 200 years from then, that he was going to be, he was going to be conquered. And that he was going to make his bed with the worms. That all the things and the kings of the earth call out to him in this metaphor and say, aren't you the great one that conquered nations? Weren't you the one that proclaimed yourself to be God? And now look at you. The bugs eat your carcass. And you're cast down here into Sheol or into hell. And you are nothing. And listen. All of those men and women and all of us who might choose to exalt ourselves in due time. Our bodies will become as dust and you and I will be nothing in significance to who Jesus Christ is. You see, when Jesus Christ died, this scripture begins to depict how he is. And here's why I brought all this up about his incarnation. Listen, we can sometimes have the lowly Jesus, the victim Jesus still. And we need to consider what he has done in the past. But we must realize that Jesus is no longer condescending. He's no longer got the frail weaknesses that, that were uh, overwhelmed him during his days in the flesh. No, rather, Jesus right now is in an altogether different state than what he ever was during his earthly pilgrimage here. Jesus Christ is exalted. This isn't fake. This isn't a story. This isn't something that I want to be true. This isn't something I'm crossing my fingers and hoping at death that Jesus Christ really is exalted. What John is describing here is a spiritual reality that exists now. He begins to tell us in verses 12 through 16 about the appearance that he saw. So there's this voice that speaks to him. And you'll notice about Jesus that he never speaks in terms of of, of hoping something comes. He speaks in the terms of commands and absolute truth with certainty. See, you and I, we speak in uncertain terms because there's so much more that we don't know than what we really do know. And so we try in our weak way to interpret what truth is and to proclaim what truth is. And hopefully we come to some degree of understanding, though our understanding is always incomplete. Jesus doesn't speak that way. That's one of the things that they marveled at during his lifetime is he spoke as one having authority or Jesus knew what he was talking about. He was not hesitant. He was not uncertain. He did not kowtow to other people's thoughts and opinions. Jesus then and now speaks truth. And notice what he says about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I was, I am, and I will always be. There are a lot of arrogant people today. It's sickening when you listen to somebody who's just arrogant and thinks they know it all and they understand it all. And I think to myself now when I listen to those people, you're just one of those. That's what I really think about those people. You're just one of those which have always been. There have always been men and women who think that they're immune to the corruptibility of this life. 
that think themselves more wise, more powerful, more able to, to, to conquer others or to be exalted. But one day, they, like all the kings of the earth in the past and all the people who were arrogant and prideful in the past, they will be abased and their voices of arrogance will be silenced. And their proclamations of certainty and power will be completely gone and nobody will remember them. That is not the case with Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus proclaims himself to be exalted. Listen to what he says here in verses 12 through 16. Listen to this. I want you to visualize this. So consider the visual of Jesus Christ. It says this. Verse 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they had burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in the strength. Can Can you visualize that? Does that seem weak and enfeebled? Does that sound like one of the last places that he was in this life, hanging upon a cross, beaten? No, that sounds what John is trying to describe in his weak way, and this is a terrible description of it, really. I mean, no disrespect, he's doing the best that he can, but what he's trying to describe is Jesus. Where's the location of Jesus right now? Well, the Bible tells us. Acts chapter 7, I believe, whenever Stephen was being murdered, And people were grabbing upon him and casting him out of the city and stoning him to death. He looks up and God allows him to see not anything special, just what was. He didn't give him some false vision. All he allowed him to do was to see what exists right now. And it was Jesus. And he was on the right hand of his father. He was cloaked in power. And he was standing upon his feet, ready to welcome Stephen to heaven. You see, Jesus, the Bible teaches us, is on a throne in heaven reigning. He's in charge. Now listen, this world, sometimes we find chaos throughout the world. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can have autonomy outside of the bounds of Jesus' rule. Well, if he grants it to us, right? God does not, we're not Ottoman. God does not control every time that I take a breath. God does not, but he sustains every time that I take a breath. God allows things to unfold according to man's free decisions. And yet at the same time, having given us this extraordinary freedom, every single thing in this universe is under his rule and control. You've never had a unique thought that God didn't know about? You can't go do something that God can't prevent you from doing. 
God is in control. That's why he's upon a throne. What else does it teach us in this scripture? Well, it tells us that he has power. We think of a king, you think of somebody who has power. I think of our president, they say he's the most powerful man in the world, probably is. He can decimate nations with just he alone. He has the prerogative and power to decimate nations. And yet his power is nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 18. Excuse me, verse 17. John gets a look at this. He says, when I, when I turned around, so this voice was coming from behind him. And he turns around and he sees this person. And he immediately falls as though he was dead. It was so mind-boggling. It was so much to take. It was so immense that he felt nothing to do but just to fall dead at his feet. And Jesus speaks to him and says, don't be afraid. Look what he says in verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Now, we come from Christian background. We hear this death, burial, resurrection of Jesus so much, but think about it for a minute. Like, stop and consider it for a minute. He was dead and he's alive. You ever been, you ever been by a corpse? I'm not talking about one that's been embalmed. I'm talking about a real corpse. Somebody who just died. Seen that life. You ever seen the struggle of the lifeless body? There's usually a struggle. There's a weakness. There's a fragility. And it's humbling when you look at it. When you see that dead, lifeless body that can do nothing now. And rigor mortis starts to set in. And there's just nothing that projects strength out of death. And yet, Jesus died. Nobody came to perform CPR. Nobody did. And suddenly, he was alive again. And he said here, unlike the other people who have been resurrected from the dead, Lazarus was resurrected. One of, uh, daughter, uh, one of the women in the Bible, their son was resurrected from the dead. We find a couple instances where people were resurrected from the dead. But the, the difference between their resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was that one, Jesus is the one that called forth for them to resurrect, but also they were going to die again. Jesus rose from the dead, and he's never going to die again. He lives forever. And because of that, he speaks to John, and he says, Listen, I have the power over hell and death. What a power to have. What a power that somebody could be cloaked with power to bring true life to anyone. Imagine that kind of power. It's easy to put somebody to death, isn't it? Bodies are so frail and fragile. It's easy to kill somebody. It's not so easy to bring somebody back to life. Jesus alone has the power through his spoken voice to make people alive. Listen, my friend that's lost, I want you to know this. Your salvation is not hard for God. He's not struggling and striving to see about to your salvation. 
It's not something where you're a case and he says, you know what? Man, that's a really tough case for me. Jesus is cloaked with immense power given to him by his father. And at his spoken voice, he can control every spiritual atom, every natural atom that exists. Your salvation is so, I I don't know the word to use at ease that he could save you. It's not a struggle. He alone has the power of death and hell. And he sits upon a throne and he's given this power. And what is the purpose of God's power? Well, he tells us in his word that one of the purposes of Jesus' power now is that he is a judge. That's what John chapter 5 told us as we studied that through our Wednesday night lessons that all judgment has been given from the Father to the Son. Paul told Timothy when he was charging him about his ministry, he says, I charge thee therefore uh, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead is appearing in his kingdom. So think of it like this. You have the most powerful being that exists and he's cloaked with this immense power where he can control everything in the universe and there is a forthcoming day where this cloak this man this being that has this immense power sitting upon a throne will have the nations of people before him and it tells us the extent and it projects this terrifying thought in verse 7 that we read when it says this behold he cometh with the clouds and every eye shall see him this isn't a joke this isn't some apocalyptic movie No, the Bible tells us unequivocally, every single, you will see Jesus Christ with your own eyes. The Bible tells us in the book of Philippians chapter 2, he has a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every mouth shall confess, every knee shall bow, before Jesus. Now, you know, I think there's a lot of people, you know, I think sometimes that's used in like an intimidating way, like bow now or else he's going to make you bow later. I don't look at it that way. I look at it very much the way that John reacted, okay? People laugh, they make fun. Jesus is a punchline. They denounce him, they, they make fun of him, they ignore him. And then, He just displays his immense power. And they come to learn, he is my judge. And what do they do? Well, in one place, Jesus describes they look for the rocks and the hills to hide them. Because in that day, there's not going to be any person saying, well, you know, you should have showed me a little more during my life. You owe me an explanation. No, no, no. The magnitude of what is coming when Jesus reveals himself, people will be in such awe that every knee will bow willingly and every tongue will have no choice but to confess the greatness of Jesus Christ. It is one of impulse. It is one that is uncontrollable. It's one of saying, oh my goodness, look at that. Look at him. I was wrong. And there he is, cloaked and the power that only God could have. So I don't tell you that this morning if you're lost to project fear in you. I'm just projecting what is and what will be. And that is that Jesus is high 
and he's lifted up. So what does this mean to us? Like if he is exalted like that, and he is presently in a state of power like that, like I want us first of all to consider this is the person that we pray to. I like, you know, when people sometimes today speak so disrespectfully about Jesus, like he's my bro, you know, like they, they speak like he's just this casual and religion today is, has, stri- has striven very much so to make him out like he's just one of the buddies. He's not. He's not. He's not one of your buddies. He's not a punchline at a party. He's God. So what does it do? Well, first of all, it ought to cause us to be humbled. Incredibly humbled. Don't you realize that you're, listen, you are sustained by him. Think about that. The blood that's circulating is not sustained by your heart. That's not why it's circulating. It is circulating because of him. Why the tornado went the direction it did the other day? It's not because there's these natural phenomenon explanations that can just be given as the final reason why it happened. He controls it. He knows. And he can, as easily as he desires, change the course of anyone or any person, anything, any natural phenomenon. Don't we see that in the scriptures? Isn't that part of the reason why we see Jesus speaking and the winds and the waves obey him and they look at him and they said, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's God. And he can do with whatever and whomever what he chooses. So knowing that my next heartbeat comes from him, here's a few things that it does. It makes me less scared of you. It makes me less concerned about human beings, even powerful ones. Because just like those three Hebrew children, just like Daniel going to the lion's den, they look to him, or just like Jesus standing before Pilate, they say, listen, Jesus says to him, you have no power over me except the power that God gave to you. I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of God. Right? So what do we do? Well, we're one, we're kept in this, reverential awe of him. It causes us to surrender and to submit. So if you're lost here this morning, here's what I want you to recognize about where Jesus is at and your response to him. You're not chasing after some objects called salvation that you can go grab. He's not playing hide and seek with you and he's got it really uh, neatly placed somewhere that you're not going to find it and all you have to do is seek out and oh, there it is and I've got salvation now. That's not the way that it works. Jesus is a being to whom you must altogether submit. I was doing this the other day when I was praying. I don't usually say what I pray, but I want you to think about this because I don't know that I I do this very often. I was telling Jesus the things that I was submitting to him. Like telling him the things. Usually I like to let those things remain assumed so that I can retain real true power over those things. But when you say, Lord, this money, 
and you know the amount in your head, it really is yours, and I want you to have it. Didn't every, every parent last week hold their children a little bit closer? I have a lot of undue anxiety about my children. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Thinking about their future. I want them so desperately to serve the Lord when they get older. And I was telling the Lord the other day, Lord, if you'll grant me one thing in this life, just one, I want my children to be ardent followers of yours. Oh, that's what I want in my life. Thought about my grandmother laying upon her bed, her deathbed. I told you this before. One day, we, the whole family gathered around her deathbed, and we were singing. And all of, excuse me, all the people that were there were serving the Lord. Imperfectly. And I very often laid that before the Lord and said, Lord, you could grant me that. You know, I may not die at an old age. I might not die in a hospital bed, and that's okay. But if I do, I don't know that there's anything that I could find more joy in, not just in that moment, but in all of my life, than to lay in a hospital bed surrounded by four children who have four spouses with grandchildren, knowing That in their life, each one of them individually, as God is leading them, are attempting to faithfully serve Him. And yet, I say that whole little story to tell you, I have to lay that down at the Lord's feet. And say, Lord, as much as it pains me to say this, if that's not the way it's going to be, I lay their life At your feet. I'm not going to try to control or guilt or cajole them. They are yours. And Lord, I submit them to you. You see, lost person, what true the point where you're repenting and believing in Jesus Christ is when you acknowledge in the depth of your being that everything you are, everything you have been, and everything you want to be is his. And you surrender it to him. I mean, really in your heart. It's not words. It's not some repetitive thing. It's not something you can even think you can do. It's something that is beyond you. It's a strength that God grants to you to even have the capacity to lay everything at his feet and say, these things are yours And all I want is what you want. That's a hard place to get. Because my heart wants a lot of things. I mean, my heart wants a whole lot that God doesn't necessarily want. I found myself lately trying to pray. Lord, instead of bringing all these things before you. I want to pray your will. I want what you want. And so I bring people before him 
And I bring situations before him. And instead of saying, God, heal this person. And God, save this person. And God, do this here and do this here. Instead of me trying to, you know, orchestrate the whole picture that I like. I'm trying to say, Lord, you're exalted. You don't need my help. And I know because of the supremacy of your character that what you want is far better than what I could ever want. And then, Lord, give me the strength. I find myself a lot more these days praying for strength. I mean, really, strength. Give me strength that when life unfolds in a way that is not aligned with what I want, give me the strength, give me the faith to keep stepping on. Not bitterly, not doubting, not... Lord, just give me strength to accept you as my Lord. And whatever you decree, whatever you decide, give me the strength to be satisfied with that. This morning, if you're lost, I'll say this. If you want to hold on to your sin, things you do, purposes you have in life... And at the same time, seek this elusive salvation thing, you're not going to find it. But if you surrender to his lordship, I mean, really, he has to become your lord before he becomes your savior. Everybody loves Jesus as savior. Not many people like him as lord. Lord means master. Lord means I'm a slave and I have no will of my own. That's why people don't get saved. Not because people don't want a savior. No, a lot of people want a savior. They want a savior from their tragedy. They want a savior from death. They want a savior from all sorts of things. What they don't want that comes along with the savior is his lordship. Is saying, you are my, I am yours. And whatever you say, I won't even question it. I'll just surrender. This morning, if you need the Lord, this scripture jumped out to me this week. He is exalted here. And he's exalted now. And what he calls you to, if we could get a song, Sister Ashley, is that you would exalt him and abase yourself and make him Lord of your life. I mean, really, he is the Lord. And there is no other like him. And you need him today if you don't know him. Let's stand and have a song. I pray today that you would surrender your life to Jesus. Let him be the Lord of your life. Sister Ashley.